Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series on Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where we're learning that even when things are unclear, God has clearly shown us what is good. Thanks for joining us. Order. Order in the court. Today we are hearing case number 618. Case 618. The Lord God versus his people Israel. If you'd like to follow along with this case, you can take your Bible and turn it to Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, if you're wondering if I've gone a little crazy, let me assure you I have not, at least not more than I already was. I just want to get us into the mood of the passage we're going to be looking at together in Micah chapter 6. Quite literally, in Micah 6, God takes his people Israel to court through his prophet-turned-lawyer, Micah. Now, just to catch you up, this morning we're going to talk about the idea of justice as we can continue this three-week series on this particular verse in Micah, Micah 6, verse 8. And in case you missed it last week, I was actually supposed to start this series with the message I'm talking about today, uh, but Jeff was kind enough to step in uh, because our son was running in a cross-country meet for state. And so we went a little bit out of order, but I have to say, I wonder if in God's sovereignty, he knew we needed to hear a message on mercy last week as we went through all of that with the election. But today we're going to go back, I'm backing up a little bit, and we're going to talk about this command God gives in verse 8 to act justly. Now let me just say a couple of preliminary things before we actually dive in. The first thing I just want to say is that throughout history, the church has had an interesting history with this idea of justice. Sometimes we call it social justice today. It's sort of been like a pendulum, right? At times it's been important to the church. At other times it hasn't been important at all. When I grew up, you know, kind of in the 80s and 90s, uh, the church was much more concerned about what they would have called the spiritual things of the faith, right? Sharing the gospel, telling the good news to other people. Uh, For me, it was kind of those more liberal or progressive churches that dealt with the justice issues. But I want to tell you from the very beginning, Both of those things have always been meant to go together. When Jesus gives one of his first sermons in Luke chapter 4, I just want us to read what he says to the people who were gathered there in the synagogue. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We see right there part of Jesus' ministry, part of the gospel is justice issues. And so if you're following on your notes, let us always remind ourselves that the gospel frees people both spiritually and physically. Justice cannot be separated from the gospel. Now, the second thing I just want to say is more of an ask, more of a favor from you. As we get into this issue of justice, I'm going to ask you if you're willing to separate it from politics. We run into a lot of trouble with the issue of justice when we marry it to politics. But let me just say, a lot of those issues come down to how justice should be done, right? What is the best way for justice to be done? So I'm just asking you, step away from the how for a moment, and let us just talk about what God says to his people about his concern for justice today. 
And so with those two things, let's move to our text. I just got to tell you on a personal note, this particular passage has meant a lot to me in my life. I was in a season in high school where I was going through a lot of questioning. Essentially, my main question is, God, what do you really want from me? And the people in this passage were asking God the same kind of things. I mean, I was going through all the right motions. I went to church every Sunday. I went to youth group every Wednesday. I read my Bible, but I just didn't have this joy, this satisfaction, this sense of real life with Jesus. And so I got to this point where it was just, tell me what you want. And the people of Israel found themselves in a similar situation. You see, they were under oppression at the time this text was written. Israel was no longer one of the leading nations. They found themselves under the control of other nations. And so they started doing all this kind of religious stuff to try to get God's back on their, back on their side. They were offering sacrifices. They were praying. They were fasting. They were going to church. They were reading their Bibles. And yet God still didn't show up in the way they expected him to. And so they're angry. We're going to see some anger in this passage. Where are you, God? What else are we supposed to do? What do you want from us? And in this passage, if you're following on your notes, God has clearly shown us what he wants and what is good. So without further ado, let's look at the case of the Lord versus his people, starting in verse 1 of Micah 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. This is great. Who does God call as his star witnesses in this case? The mountains, the hills, the foundations of the earth. Why? They've been there since the beginning. They know about the covenant agreement that God entered into with his people, Israel. So God calls them, these things that have been there since he created the world as he launches his accusation against Israel. Look at verse three. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. What are you so mad about? You think this is my fault? Okay, in verses four and five, I'm gonna lay out some evidence for you that I'm not the one who's to blame for the mess you find yourselves in. Exhibit A, verse four, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Exhibit B, I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Exhibit C, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Exhibit D, remember your journey from Shittaim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Three of those four instances are from the book of Numbers, which we studied together this summer as a church. But all of them, God is just laying out evidences that he has been faithful in his covenant relationship with the people Israel. He has more than fulfilled his end of the covenant covenant agreement, but the people aren't satisfied. And so in verses 16, they pick up a counter-argument against God. They join the legal argument and give a counter-argument to God's argument. The people refuse to believe that the fault lies with them and that it still lies with God. And I think as we read this, there's a bit of a sarcastic tone here. There's an accusatory tone here. The speaker gets so angry with God, again, he comes up with this, what are you really wanting from us? Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? These would have been the best sacrifices that they could have offered. Is that what you want, God? Will that make you happy? More sacrifices. Verse seven, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Can you sense their frustration and anger? These are not even doable sacrifices. They're beyond what could ever be conceived, but that's what they think. That's the only thing that would ultimately be able to please God, something impossible. It gets worse. Look at the rest of verse seven. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Yikes. They're angry. They're frustrated. They are saying, is the only thing that's really going to satisfy you is if we offer our own children to sacrifice to you, something that is forbidden in God's law. Defiantly, they are asking God, is this what you want from us, God? Do you want us to kill our children? Will that satisfy you? Is that the thing you want from us. Ultimately, if you're falling on your notes, the people ask what religious activity will make God happy. They're essentially saying, we're doing everything we can here. We're sacrificing, we're praying, we're fasting, and none of that seems to make a difference to you. We still find ourselves in bondage. We still find ourselves in slavery. In the, their minds, there must be some a problem here. And the problem is that God must want something from them. And if they give him this thing, then God will shower his blessings on them once again. Can I just ask, do you ever think like that? Is there just something that I could do for you, God, that you would shower your blessings upon me again? I've said it before, I'll say it again. We all do this, and it's called religion. We offer God something that we think will please him, and then we kind of manipulate it, saying, God, I gave you this thing, now you give me back what I want in return. This is where I was in high school. I was offering God all of these things, and yet I wasn't experiencing the abundant life that Jesus said he offers. Why? Because religion is dead. Religion is dead. And in verse 8, God essentially says, I'm not interested in your religious activities. You want to know what I want from you? I'll tell you. Let's read verse 8 out loud together on our notes there. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The verdict is spoken. What does God require from us? What does God really want? God's answer must have come as a bit of a surprise to the people of Israel. You see, he is saying, I don't require anything from you at all. The people's question of what God wants is based on this false assumption of religion. If we give him a thing, then God will be satisfied and give us our thing. Give us what we want, some sacrifice, some religious activity, some religious ceremony. That must be what God wants. That's how we appease God. But if you're falling on your notes again, God has always wanted obedience, not religion. It's basically like he's saying, listen, we've talked about this since I called you as my people. I could care less about your religious ceremonies and sacrifices if your heart isn't lined up with my heart. Your sacrifices and worship are meaningless to me unless 
It is accompanied with living the life that I've called you to live, namely humbly caring for the people I care about, those who need justice and mercy and love and kindness. And today we're focusing on this issue of justice. That is what God wants. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about justice or injustice, but I think that word has become so watered down in our society, we've kind of lost its true meaning. For example, I can be driving on the road sometimes and somebody cuts me off and I think that's unjust. I've just been faced with a great injustice in my life. Or I see the person in front of me and the 10 items are fewer at the shopping market and they have 12 items. God, bring justice in this situation. Is that what we're really talking about when we come talk about biblical justice? I don't think so. Justice is so big, it's actually fundamental to who God actually is. It is his character. It is his nature. And the first thing we have to understand, when the Bible talks about this idea of justice, there's actually two types of justice it talks about. I'm going to use some really fancy words here, so get ready on your notes. Justice in the Bible is described as retributive. I I can never say that word. I hate it. I should have picked a different word. And restorative. Retributive, yes. Justice is the punishment of evil. This is probably the kind of justice we're most familiar with in the Bible, right? The Bible is clear. God is the judge. He is the judge of justice, and he will punish all evil because God is holy and righteous. He will not let evil win. Every person, we're told, will stand before his throne in judgment. At its heart, this kind of justice just means getting what we deserve, getting what you deserve Thankfully, as we learned last week from Jeff, God is also merciful. And in his mercy, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who took the judgment upon himself so that we could have eternal life in God. Thanks be to the God of mercy. But there's a different type of justice the Bible talks about. It's restorative justice. And that focuses on restoring victims of injustice. And here's what's interesting. This kind of justice is talked a lot, a lot more in the Bible than is retributive justice. In other words, there's more in the Bible about restoring people who are under injustice than about God's judgment. And this is because if you're following, God is just, that's who he is, and he hates all injustice. And so just don't miss this. This is who God is, right? God is just, so he will punish all injustice. God is just, so he is restoring all injustice. Both of those things are a part of the character and nature of God. He is the God of justice. Now, I don't know how you introduce yourself when you meet somebody. I just typically would say, hey, my name's uh, Steve. I'm a a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor at a church. Did you know in the Bible there's times when God simply calls himself the father to the fatherless, the husband to the widow, the defender of the widows. This is his character. It's who he is. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus literally identified with the poor. He was born in a feed trough. When his parents offered the obligatory sacrifices, they brought two pigeons, which is what the poorest of the poor would have offered. Jesus also identified with the oppressed. He went through a mistrial. He was put to death, even though he was an innocent man. 
And here's what's radical about God and justice. This is gonna be startling for some of you, but did you know over and over and over again in the Bible, God says, if you think you have a saving relationship with me, but you don't seek restorative justice for the least of these, then you really don't know me. You really don't know my heart. You really don't know who I am. This is found everywhere in the Bible, but maybe the most sobering example of this is found in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Look at the screen with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That is how closely God relates to the least of these. When God created us in his image, he designed it so that all of us would experience a certain measure of life and, and liberty and enjoying the fruit of our labor and dignity. But that was broken when sin entered to the world. And so when God calls us to act justly, he is calling us to restore what has been taken from some people. Some people in our society who are in a position to have these things taken from them. When that happens, that is called injustice. And according to the Bible, again, if you're on your notes, injustice is a sin involving the abuse of power. It all comes down to power. Someone in power using their power in a way to power up over somebody else. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 1, Solomon writes this, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Injustice incurs when someone in power and authority misuses their power to crush, to humiliate, to animalize, to impoverish, to enslave, even to kill persons who have been created in the image of God. And this burns the heart of God. This burns the heart of God. And it's why he calls us as his people today to work towards restorative justice. The first time I ever saw injustice in my life, I think I was in second grade. I was walking out uh, to my school bus to get on the bus, and I saw one of our classmates. He was walking out to his car to be picked up by his dad. I saw his dad open his car door. He slammed the door. He ran to his son, and he just started beating him right in front of all of us, just hitting him and pounding him. Now, I don't know what the son did. 
But what I do know is this dad who is in a position of power is abusing his power as a dad on someone who couldn't defend themselves. Another time I saw this happen was about 10 years ago. A group of us from Cherry Hills went and visited a church in Cherry Hills. Because of your generosity, we actually helped them build this church. And we met a lady there named Anna. And Anna had been approached by the government and said, we're taking your house. And there's nothing she could do about it. These people in authority and power abusing their power and basically kicking out this widow of her house. This burns the heart of God. And the bottom line is, friends, if you're on your notes, God is not interested in religious activity without ethical action. The two go hand in hand. As James 1.27, which I have on your notes there says, can we read that together? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. Does God ever say that our personal and corporate worship doesn't matter to him? Absolutely not. It matters to him. He loves the praises of his people. What he does say, though, is if those things are not combined with a life that is caring for the people that I care about, then you're just going through the motions. The gospel cares, frees people, both spiritually and physically, and we must care about both of those things. This is what God wants. You want to know what God wants? He wants faith working itself out in action. Yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment we've been giving, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the ways we do that is through restorative justice. So how do we, that's the big question, how do we fight against injustice today if this is so important to God? Now, much like the issue of mercy last week, these issues of injustice and justice can seem overwhelming. It's hard to know where even to start. And so I've been praying this week. I could have come up with nine things we can do for injustice, but I've tried to narrow it down to three simple ideas for you. Number one, educate yourself of all the injustices in our city and world. Number one, just learn more about it. Let's be honest we have it pretty good as American Christians. And the longer I live, the truer I find this statement, ignorance is bliss. We're so protected here in our environments here. We just don't think about this stuff much. I just don't think about it because I don't see it that much in my life. John Piper put it this way. Look at the screen there. He says, this is because of self-indulgence. Because I think most indifference to injustice among professing Christians is not owing to convictional partiality or convictional opposition. All that just means is it's not really down to political positions. But rather to the moral stupor that comes over us when we are satiated with the comforts of this world. I, I agree with that. We have it good. I don't see some of this stuff in my life because I have it good. But Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 say to us, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this. 
Does he not, does he, not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Ignorance is not an option for followers of Jesus. So educate yourself. About 15 years ago, uh, instead of educating myself, God educated me. I was at a conference. It was late in the afternoon, one of those lazy afternoon sessions. You know, they put one of the least important speakers at that time. People are falling asleep all around me. And I was enraptured because the speaker was a guy by the name of Gary Hogan. He was the president of International Justice Mission. And he was saying things about slavery and trafficking and sex trafficking that I had never heard before. I had been living in ignorance and God educated me. He educated me about some of the horrible things that are going on in our world around me. I'll share some of those things in a little bit here. But as I mentioned earlier, let's not separate God's love for the world into spiritual and physical categories. They're both important. We just did a six-week series called The One. We are to go and tell the gospel to others, the greatest news of the forgiveness of sin that Jesus offers. But we're also to show the gospel to others through restorative Justice. So all I'm asking you is, would you inform yourself about what's really going on in this world and in this city? Even better, educate yourself about how God really feels about this issue. This isn't just me standing up here. I challenge you, read the Bible. Look at how much God cares about the least of these. I mean, just even some of the laws in the Old Testament that we think are crazy. You know what a lot of them are there for? To protect the least of these. I'll just give two examples. Think about the law of gleaning. The Israelites were not allowed to glean their entire field. They were supposed to leave some of their field there for the poor to come and have food. That's awesome. Think about the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, God said he wanted all the people to set all of their slaves and servants free. Some of these laws were simply to protect people. Friends, justice isn't a political thing. It's a human being thing. It's a God thing. Number two, I'd encourage you to, here's what I'd encourage you, to pray for a specific passion. A specific passion. There's all kinds of injustices that take place in our world, and quite simply, we're to be fighting against all of them, but it's overwhelming. In fact, let me just mention some of the injustices we see today. Areas of injustice include the unborn. As Christians, we believe life starts at conception. We're called to fight against the injustice of that life being taken away. But listen to me, being pro-life is more than just being anti-abortion. It means investing in the mothers who are willing to carry those babies long-term. It means giving to organizations that help them see that. It means investing in those babies who are born and come to life. Other examples of who we should be fighting for, widows and orphans, we saw that in James. We're to care especially for those. Why? Because they don't have the power and the voice that we might. Christians should lead the charge against racism. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to read Ephesians 2 this week. You can see God's heart against racism. He created what we're told is to be a new people. No longer slave nor free, Jew or Greek. We are to become one people. We need to take care of the poor. 
God has a huge heart for the poor. We're to fight against slavery. This is where I was educated. Did you know that there are more people in slavery today than any other time in the world's history? There are over 40 million people in slavery today. 15 million children in India alone are in bonded slavery. Do you think God cares about that? Absolutely. Here's another one, trafficking, sex trafficking. There's other kinds of trafficking as well, but here's some more ways I was educated. Trafficking is the world's third largest criminal enterprise after drugs and weapons. Worldwide, this breaks my heart, there are nearly two million children in the commercial sex trade. Two million children who are having their rights as human beings being taken from them by abuse and power. There's other kinds of injustices. One more I wrote there is those who are wrongly convicted. Jesus was wrongly convicted. All throughout the world, people are being wrongly convicted. I could go on. Genocide, torture, illegal land seizures, like the woman I told you about in El Salvador, the poor treatment of refugees. Are you depressed yet? Me too. This is not how it's supposed to be. So many injustices. It's easy to become paralyzed, isn't it? To become overwhelmed, but here's all I'm suggesting to you. Will you take time this week in prayer to ask the Lord to reveal one specific passion for you? One passion that God might be calling you to act justly in. It was on that day 15 years ago when I heard him speaking that God called me to support international justice mission to support their work in freeing slaves from freeing children from sex trafficking. We have all kinds of opportunities. Jeff just talked about our foster children thing, just volunteering to help uh, some of these families who are willing to bring these least of these kids into their homes, be a part of something like that. I think about Washington Street Mission, helping the poor. I, I think about a girl in our life group who is counseling women who are considering abortion. I think about those who are passionate about going down to Juarez, Mexico, and working with the poor. We have tons of injustices all around us. Would you pray specifically for a passion for one of those? And then last but not least, once you discover that passion, act. Just do something. Advocate for the poor. Go on a mission trip. Open up your eyes to the reality of the injustices all around us in this world. Give generously to organizations that are fighting against these things. Get involved in one of the many local organizations we support here in town as a church family. The opportunities to act are endless. If you're following on your notes, Micah 6.8 reminds us, friends, God has called us as his people today to be as agents of justice in this world. And while we can't tackle every mountain, we can take a personal step. It reminds me of the parable of the feet, not the parable, the feeding of the 5,000. Some of you might remember this story where Jesus tells his disciples, there's 5,000 people listening to him teach. Jesus says, I want you to feed them. Can you imagine the look on their face at that moment? Uh, Jesus, all we have is a a couple of bucks here. I'm not sure exactly how we're supposed to feed all these people. And he says, well, tell me what you do have. And so they go out and they ask and they come back and he's, we've got two fish and five loaves of bread. 
Not sure if the math works there, but I don't think we're going to be able to feed 5,000 people. And Jesus says, well, give that to me. Give what you have to me. So he takes these two fish and these five loaves of bread, and he does what? He multiplies it. And he does a miracle. He feeds those 5,000 people. And I think all I'm saying to us today, this, these issues are like mountains. I don't know how to move them. But what God is saying to us, will you just give me what you have? Give me your two fish. Give me your five loaves. And I will take that and I will multiply that. This is what God wants. Our faith being acted out in justice. So as we close, let me ask you, will I take steps to act justly in my life? Just one step. One step. Thus ends the case of 618. As we close our service this morning, we have asked two of our missionaries that we support in Bangkok, Thailand, Jeff and Annie Dieselberg. Friends, they're working in the sex trafficking industry. Bangkok is perhaps the worst city in the world for this. And they're right in the midst of it, working for justice for these women. And we've asked if they'd be willing to close with us in prayer. It's kind of an interactive prayer, so on the back of your notes there, we've printed out their prayer for you. They're gonna explain a little bit of it to you. You're gonna, one of those prayers where you keep your eyes open. But let's let Jeff and Annie close us in prayer this morning. Good morning, Cherry Hills. It's really good to be with you and to be part of this service. We're going to lead you in a prayer that is a responsive prayer that Annie has written. And after each verse, you're going to say, Lord, have mercy. Let us pray. Lord, we now turn our thoughts to those in need. There are so many for whom the gift of life has become a burden. Plunge us deep into a sense of sadness at the pain of our sisters and brothers, inflicted by war, prejudice, injustice, indifference, that we may learn again to cry as a child until our tears baptize us into people who touch with care. Lord, have mercy. We touch now in prayer those close to us, those whose physical pain smothers their joy, whose bodies ache to be released from illness. Lord, have mercy. For those who in marriages chant battle songs rather than songs of tender love, Lord, have, have mercy. For children whose sense of self has become confused with the values of the world, and for parents who struggle to lead them in your way, Lord, have, have mercy. We pray for those in our city and nation, God, the homeless, the poor, the downtrodden. Forgive us, Lord, for not seeing you in them and for the misuse of our resources, which are all yours anyway. Lord, have mercy. For the women and the children, Lord, whose bodies are sold for sensuality and whose hearts are prisoners of self-hate. Lord, have mercy. For babies abandoned, mouths craving mother's milk, hearts craving a mother's embrace. Lord, have mercy. For those who have been possessed by evil, and who stagnate in prison while waiting 
to know the deliverance of your salvation. Lord, have, have mercy. For the politicians and government workers, Lord, who daily live between the tension of self-service and care for this nation. Lord, have mercy. Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters worldwide for those who are persecuted for their faith, for the suffering church. Lord, have mercy. For those whose homes have been erased by flood, whose resources have dried up from drought or have been swallowed by nature's rebellion. Lord, have mercy. For those in bondage, Lord, who live in the tyranny of evil leaders and the fear of facing the guns. Lord, have mercy. For the millions of refugees who cannot return home and who cannot be at home where they are. Lord, have mercy. Lord, we confess both our ignorance and our indifference to the pain that inflicts this world. It is much easier to cope, Lord, if we pretend that it's just not there. Lord, have mercy. Change our hearts, Lord, that we would care deeply enough to see the world through your eyes, to wince with the pain that you feel, to be sensitive to your spirit, that we might respond and touch this hurting world with your healing love. Lord, have mercy. Show us what you have required, Lord, to show mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with our God. Lord, have mercy. Amen. 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 You know what amen means? It doesn't mean the end. It means may it be so. And in this chance, in this, uh, in this situation, we have the chance to answer that prayer. May it be so. May we act justly in this world today. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.